I have the pleasure this morning of beginning our new sermon series, which is called God Questions. And what we're going to be delving into is this, in this series is an exploration of who God is, what he's like, how we can know him and walk with him daily. And this week and next week, we're going to be starting with the most fundamental topic of all. Is God real? Now, because you're sitting here in a church service, you probably already have an inkling as to what my answer to this question is going to be. <laughs> um, but no matter where you stand today, whether you're here as a committed believer or you're here as a committed skeptic, I'd encourage you not to tune out because this is a question that concerns every one of us in different ways. Uh, the philosopher Mortimer Adler said, more consequences for thought and action follow the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic question. In other words, how you answer this question of whether or not God is real shapes more of your worldview and the way you live your life than any other single question. So no one can afford to ignore whether or not there is a God or whether or not the God that they say they worship is the real God. The stakes are too high. And so today what we're going to look at um, is, first of all, the nature of faith, then the evidence that there is for God, and then thirdly, what is it like to encounter the reality of God? So this passage that we read in Romans 1, it, it contains some of the best-known words from the New Testament. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So for Paul here, who wrote this, this letter uh, to the Roman church, for Paul to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel, it suggests that other people thought that the gospel was something to be ashamed about. And of course, the same could be said today. Virtually nothing could bring more shame from the community on a modern-day Jew or Muslim or Buddhist than to accept the gospel, to do what Chris this morning did in taking baptism and identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. Many would consider a shameful uh, betrayal of their religious identity. On the other hand, in any given university lecture hall or government office or professional workplace, to believe in God, especially the God of the gospel, is seen as something just hopelessly ignorant and stupid, to be honest. The gospel in Paul's day and in our day and in every day causes offense. Jesus was, in fact, called the rock of offense. But one of the particular reasons why that attitude persists today is what Paul goes on to say in the next verse. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you were to ask the average person today, Give me a definition of faith. What is faith? I think 
a lot of people that you'd meet on the street would probably say something similar to the definition given by Richard Dawkins, who's a, a well-known atheist um, writer. Uh, he defines faith like this. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. And so the idea goes, uh, the so-called secular person bases what they believe on evidence, whereas a person of faith bases their life on something with no evidence. Or maybe they even believe it because there's no evidence. And that does describe a certain kind of faith, a faith that you could call blind faith. But what a lot of people don't realize, and even many Christians don't realize, is that um, that's not biblical faith. It's actually not even uh, the most common way that we see faith in general life. Did you know everybody has faith? Almost all the things that we know or think we know and do and base our lives on are founded on trust in the things and the people around us. It's the foundation of pretty much everything we do in our lives. You couldn't run business without trust. You couldn't have relationships without trust. You couldn't run a government or, or do finances or basically do anything in our day-to-day lives without trust. And human life is based on things that we know that we couldn't prove in an absolute way, but which we still know to be true. For instance, you can't absolutely prove the existence of justice or love. And yet we spend our whole lives in pursuit of justice and love. We all know they exist. We believe in them deeply. We shape our lives around them. Because human life is impossible to live without faith. And the reason is, faith simply means trust. The simplest um, example of, of what faith is really like that, that I can think of is a chair. Um, now, you all have had a little bit of a workout this morning. You've, you've stood up and sit, sat down at least three or four times. I lost, uh, I wasn't really counting, but um, in those three or four times that you took your seat today, you trusted without questioning that what you were about to sit on was a physical object. It wasn't a hologram. You trusted that it was able to support your weight and keep you in place. It was a trust that you had implicitly. You didn't, you didn't form a belief about it. You just simply trusted it. Now, how did you arrive at that trust? I would be willing to bet you didn't gain your trust in your seat through scientific research or through logical deduction Why did you have faith? You had faith in the chair, the seat, not because you simply just grit your teeth and summon the courage to sit down despite all the evidence to prove that the seat wasn't really there. That even though everything was telling you there really was no chair, you had the courage to sit down. And that was your faith. No, that's not your faith. Your faith was your simple trust that the chair was reliable based on the evidence of what you know about chairs in general, what kind of things they are, 
and also the evidence of your experience, the fact that you've sat down on a chair like that or a seat thousands of times, maybe even thousands of times in this very building. And so the trust that you had in sitting down that you didn't question for a second was not built on just your determination to believe without evidence. It was built on rational, reasonable evidence. And so we begin to get closer to what the Bible means by faith. The Bible doesn't tell us just to believe things just because. It tells us to trust God based on the evidence of the kind of person that he is, which is proven by the things that he has done. Christian faith, despite what Dawkins and other uh, uh, atheist writers would say, Christian faith is not the same thing as saying, I believe in fairies at the bottom of the garden. Just some irrational statement with nothing to back it up other than your personal belief. Christian faith is a lot closer to what we mean when we say, I have faith in my friend. I have faith in my husband. I have faith in my wife. Now, when you say you have faith in your friend or your husband or your wife, it doesn't just mean that you believe they exist. It means you trust them. And you trust them based on their character, which you have experienced through what they've done. Now, Hebrews 11, uh, Hebrews 11 is the famous chapter about faith, but Hebrews 11.6 talks specifically about this. It says, without faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. It can't be anything less than that. But it, it's more than that. They must believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Having faith doesn't only, believe, uh, doesn't only mean believing that God exists, but that we trust his character. We trust on him. We rely on him because of what we know of his character, which gives us the confidence to believe his promises. Biblical faith invites us to trust God because of the evidence. That's why 2 Peter 1.16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The message preached by the apostles wasn't simply believe or else. It was believe because. Believe because of this man that we knew and walked with and lived with, who died and resurrected. Believe because of him, not on our account, not because we're telling you, but because of him. And as we read on in, in, in this passage in Romans in verse 18, Paul makes some incredibly strong statements about this evidence for God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It's a common claim that uh, if 
God were just to offer some, some, some really strong, irrefutable proof that, yeah, sure, I'd believe in him, but God hasn't done that. And so I'm, 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 I'm justified in my unbelief. And so a lot of times, um, believers will concede, okay, all right, there is no way to actually prove that there's a God. You just need to accept it by faith. But that's actually not what Paul says here. Paul says, in fact, there's a body of evidence demonstrated in creation which is so compelling that he says it leaves all of humanity without excuse before God. That is an incredibly strong statement. He says these things can be known, not just hoped for or wished or believed personally, but these are things that can be known about God. And so what I want to do is present four simple things that we can know from the natural creation that give us substantial knowledge about God. And uh, to make sure I don't go on and on and on, because you could talk about these things and we have for thousands of years, uh, I've got a one-minute timer for each of these four things. Okay? So I realize some of this is a little bit heady, and, you know, uh, so if it bores you, don't worry, it's only four minutes long. Okay? And it'll be right on there so you can keep me accountable. Okay? <laughs> um, okay. So four things that we can observe from nature that give us knowledge about God. So first of all, number one, the universe had a beginning. Now, okay, this might seem uh, a little bit irrelevant, but this is what the scientists talk about when they speak about the Big Bang. In one moment, roughly 14 billion years ago, as the song goes, uh, there was nothing. And then in the next moment, Everything in the physical universe, including time, space, matter, the forces of nature themselves, exploded into being. Now, that might not seem relevant to this until you realize that that leaves you only with two choices. Either the physical universe was not produced by anything, it popped into existence, or it was produced by something non-physical. It can't be the first option because we know that every physical thing and process is part of this great chain of cause and effect. So there's no reason to think that the universe itself would somehow be the exception to that rule. And so the only option that we're left with is that the universe was caused by something not physical or spiritual, you might say. Secondly, uh, not only does the universe exist, but it's perfectly ordered to support intelligent life. For roughly the past 60 years, scientists have been looking for aliens, for extraterrestrial life, and at first they believed that only two factors needed to be in place for life to be possible on a planet. They said you needed to have the right kind of star and a planet the right distance from that star. And so what that meant was there were trillions upon trillions of possible planets that could support life. Nowadays, as science has advanced, they recognize there's actually more than 200 increasingly precise factors that need to be exactly in place for life to even be possible. And so this is known as the fine-tuning of the universe for life. But how did it come to be that way? And again, we're only left with three options. Either it had to be that way, it's simply by chance, or it was by design. 
And if there's no reason to think it had to be this way, and the odds of it being by chance are astronomical, literally, then the most rational option is it was by design. Number three, <laughs> the universe not only contains moral order out there, but there's a moral order, right and wrong. We notice that there's, an, uh, there's a fixed way that things work morally. Every one of us can point to things that we know are always right and good, and other things that are always wrong and bad, no matter where we're from, the time we live in, or the way we feel about it. In other words, they seem to be a matter of fact. How do we explain that? And again, you're only left with three options. Either those universal morals come from what society teaches us, or they're passed down to us through evolution, or they come from the fixed order of a designer. But society's views are always changing, and they can't give us a universal fact. Evolution is only able to give us instincts and not morals which help us choose between the right and wrong instincts. And so again, we're left with the most reasonable option that the moral order is instituted by a moral god. Number four. <laughs> Keep up. Okay, fourthly, we have a longing which can't be satisfied by anything on earth. One of the deepest and most common experiences in life is an inner longing for something that nothing in this world seems able to satisfy. We look for fulfillment in success, money, power, sex, drugs, uh, experiences, but we never quite find what we're looking for. We're always left feeling there must be more. And so, again, how do we make sense of this virtually universal experience of human life? Either... There must be some other thing out there that we haven't tried yet. Or it's all rubbish and it's an illusion. Or there really is an object for that desire that we feel. Well, it's safe to say that everything that can be tried on this earth has been tried through human history. And it doesn't make sense for there to be no object for that desire, just like it wouldn't make sense to feel thirst in a world with no water. And so the way C.S. Lewis concludes this is saying, if I find in myself a desire which no experience can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Okay, four minutes. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Um, while I was trying to do as much justice as I could in a minute, um, obviously, you're not able to get into the intricacies and the different perspectives on all those questions. But if you do want to, you know, if you're interested in that stuff, you want to know more, you want to research more, I can recommend you books. The library uh, is set up out there, uh, and they have resources to offer as well. Um, but even in four minutes, with four simple observations that are accessible to everyone, um, we've established actually some very substantial things. The universe was caused by something outside of itself. Here's a mouthful of a sentence. Um, the universe was caused by something outside of itself, something which must be non-physical, infinitely powerful, infinitely intelligent, eternal, an immoral personality who finely tuned life in creation and built a desire for that being within us. 
And so without even opening a Bible, with four simple observations about the, the, the universe and life in general, we're already beginning to develop a picture that looks a lot like what we can only call God. A being that undoubtedly deserves our honor and our thanks. And all of that accessible, visible, right from creation. And what we're talking about here is getting in touch, knowing what is ultimate reality. That's the basic question for any philosophy or worldview. Is this material stuff around us, the be-all and end-all, is that the ultimate reality? Or is there something prior? Is there something higher? Um, And what we've seen is the most rational conclusion is yes, we can know that there must be something prior and higher. Um, And in the face of what we can know in creation, the most natural response would be to say, Whoever this being is, he deserves our dedication and our thanks because we owe him everything. And so if I don't know him, I better go try and find out. But, you know, I wish it could be that simple. Uh, (laughs) We all know the truth is things aren't that simple. There's no, uh, the reason there's no one single one-minute knockdown piece of evidence that will immediately convince everyone that God exists and that they need to dedicate their lives to him, is that we're not just dealing with an intellectual thing. We're dealing with a matter of the heart. Um, much of the time, uh, and, and Selena and I have been involved in, in, in a lot of university missions and apologetics, you know, speaking and evangelism and that kind of stuff. And a lot of time, the intellectual problems are just a smokescreen for a heart that wants to go its own way. And that's exactly what Jesus says in John 3.19. He says, the light, this is the judgment. The light came into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We know, da- we know deep down that such a being must exist, and that if he does, he's worthy of our lives, of our thanks, of our glory, but we refuse. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 21. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The natural outcome of refusing to acknowledge and live in reality is that your thinking becomes clouded. And unless, uh, and it becomes useless, and you get more and more deceived and lost in lies and unable to tell what's real from what's fake. And that's the deception that the Bible says the human race has fallen into says in verse 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All through this passage that we've been reading, there's a contrast between what's ultimately real and lasting and what's ultimately fake and transitory. 
the tragedy, Paul says the tragedy of the human race is that we exchanged the true and real glory for cheap imitations. And it's not that those things were bad in themselves. It's that when you put them on a pedestal, when you treat them as the ultimate thing, all that you're left with is disappointment. And the words there in Greek are, are, uh, more literally, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images resembling corruptible man. It really emphasizes uh, something that is eternal and everlasting and, and never, uh, never deteriorates versus that which will definitely come to an end. And what impacts me uh, is that it says we exchanged that real glory for corruptible, not even for corruptible man, it says for images resembling corruptible man. We didn't even put man who was made, humanity that was made in God's image as the thing to worship, but we made statues of a man and statues and paintings and figurines of, of created things. And so we traded the true for the fake. And that's what idolatry looks like. Getting the whole order of reality upside down. Not only is the creator not honored, but the crown of his creation that was made in his image, humanity, is put even below lower creations and things that they make with their own hand. And you can find that theme running through all the, all the scripture, especially the prophets, um, and when you elevate something over you and you serve it, that thing becomes your master. And so that's why it says in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry, this switching for the, the, the real for the fake, is the root of all the problems in our lives and in the universe. Idolatry, when you get things out of order like that, the result is sin. Sin is the abuse of the good things that God has created, that he made for our flourishing, for our happiness, and putting, putting them above us. Instead of them serving us, we begin to serve them. And we become enslaved to them. And the result is the disintegration of everything that was meant to be. That's the result of replacing the real with an imitation. Things fall apart. That's the same thing uh, that... Uh, that you can see in addictions when you take a good thing like a medicine or you take a, a, a food or, or um, uh, things that were intended for good and you make them your master, your whole life begins to unravel because they weren't the thing that was made to satisfy you. And that can happen to the irreligious just as much as to the religious. In fact, Paul said, this gospel, this God is a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolishness to Greeks. 
to religious people, this is, this is a challenge to their whole system. To the irreligious, this is just laughable. Um, the amazing thing is, the thing that's good news is that God loves us far too much to let us settle for fake, to let us settle for imitation. He wants us to have the real thing. And so actually, that's why Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That wrath of God um, is his wrath against idolatry that he's released us into the consequences of where that leads. He has to release us into that for us to really find out that nothing else can take his place. Because God wants us to live in reality. And the good news is that that good news that's shameful to the world, shameful to um, um, uh, the religious and the irreligious, but it's beautiful to those who know and trust God. The good news is that that reality, the ultimate reality, the creator of the universe has stepped into history in the person of Jesus, so that we could be set free from slavery to imitations, so that we could be set free from the fake and once again live in true reality. Freedom at last. That's the good news that Paul is proclaiming. So, the last thing to mention here, what does it look, what does it look like to come into contact with that kind of God? What does it look like to encounter his reality? Not just outward appearances or words or going through the motions, but reality. That reality that Paul says is the power of God. Not just words. He says power, and the Greek word is dunamis, dynamite, dynamic. Things that when they come into your life, they rearrange things. You don't walk out of an explosion the same. When God comes into our lives, he shakes us up. And this is one of the, um, this reality of God is one of the central things in in C.S. Lewis's writings. You can read The Weight of Glory, one of the most beautiful essays um, I've ever found on, on coming into contact with the, with the living God. Um, he experienced it, C.S. Lewis. Another person that experienced it was, was Blaise Pascal, um, the French mathematician, philosopher. Um, I just want to read you a little quote. On the, on the 23rd of November, 1654, when, when Pascal was 31, uh, he was the genius of all France. Uh, he had an experience that left him completely changed forever. Um, and after that experience, he, he, wrote, he, he wrote down a little piece of paper and he sewed it into his coat pocket and they didn't find it until after he died. But this is part of what that, that piece of paper said. This was his experience. It says, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, 
God of Jesus Christ, joy, 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 tears of joy. Each one of us is different, and God, even in the scripture, he never seems to visit exactly uh, the same way twice. And so, try, you know, wanting to encounter the reality of God, it's not about seeking an emotional experience or drumming up some sort of passion or trying to recreate someone else's experience. It's about the power of the real God, the living God, breaking into your life. It's explosive. You know about it when, when he invades your life. It's not a God of our own making that we can fit in our pockets and just take wherever we want to go. It's ultimate reality, the living God in our lives. With all the things that we looked at about who that God is, do you think that's the kind of person you invite into your life to be your assistant? the ultimate reality, the creator and designer and upholder of the entire universe. This is the God that when people come into his presence in the Bible, they fall on their faces and they say, woe is me. And when God lifts them up, they say, send me, I'll go, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so the question for us is, have you encountered the living God. Don't expect it to look like anyone else's encounter, but have you encountered the living God? Have you entered his reality? Or are you content to carry on cashing in for cheap imitations? He's inviting us today. Don't hold back. I'd like to invite the, the worship band back up. Um, what we read in, in the Bible and in every person's experience that I know of, when they, when they really come into the, the presence of God, is that it's terrifying. And when you understand who God is, fear is the appropriate response of being in his presence. And yet that same God, in every case that we find that in the Bible, he lifts that person's head and he says, do not fear. I love you. I'm with you. You are mine. And when the creator of the universe, the only one that we should really fear, looks at you and me and says, do not fear. You belong to me. It means we can be utterly fearless. You can live in reality. And just as the, as the band um, just plays lightly, I want to I end, this is the real end, uh, of my part anyway. Um, I want to read you a, 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 a poem that I wrote actually. I had a... I've had several experiences, I could say, that, uh, of feeling the, the real presence of God and just that, <laughs> who am I? Woe is me. Um, I've, had, I've had a number of those experiences, but um, one was, was during a, a worship meeting, and I was actually playing drums. And at one point, 
in the meeting, I just stopped playing drums and I took out my notepad and I wrote down this poem. And so it's a little rough, but um, this is this is what it says. It's called Bereaved of My Own Grandeur. That moment your holy laughter rose. When I recognized the sound. When I knew it was that old mirth. It was the same bellow of joy that once stirred. It was the laughter that broke the sadness. It was the laughter that lifted the cloak, that lifted the sadness and inhabited. It's back. A voice I longed to hear, but whose sweet tones I had almost forgotten. Too soft. Too subtle. Too strong. Unshakable, gentle steel. You are welcome. Welcome. I will take my shoes off. I wouldn't want to traipse the mud and dust in. I am nothing. Nothing. Dust. What can I clasp to in such a presence? How could I endure? What use is my mask, my pretension, my make-believe? When the light penetrates, unhidden, laid bare, bereaved of my own grandeur, for I stand before yours.